But this week and last week, we were um, in sort of a, a two-week broad look at some of the history of the church from two different angles, two different perspectives. The, the first one being the last week, the perspective of the church persecuted, that um, we talked about the scriptural expectation of persecution, that throughout the world, Scripture teaches us to, to expect persecution, pushback, hardship, affliction from a lot of different places, a lot of different sources. We talked about the scriptural expectation that there will be persecution and why. We also talked about the scriptural and historical outcome of persecution. What has persecution done to the church throughout its history? What does scripture teach us to expect would be the outcome of of persecution and historically what has been the outcome and quite frankly we saw both in scripture and in history that persecution has been a steady reality um, throughout the world but even with that both scripture and history have shown that persecution paradoxically has led largely to positive outcomes throughout the history of the church yeah there have been times and there are still places in the world today where the persecution, oppression, suppression of the gospel uh, and of believers has been so intense and severe and, and constant that it has largely eliminated the presence of the church and the gospel in a place. There are parts of the world like that now. And scripture in the book of Revelation tells us to expect that too. It talks about in chapter 11 and 12 about a time where the there are places where the church appears dead and the people will celebrate and, and dance and exchange gifts, but then that, that what appeared dead would come back to life. And, and so ultimately the church will be victorious even in places like that. But for the most part, we said last week, that persecution has been the catalyst for the spread of the church and the spread of the gospel. It's persecuted here. The people flee, but they take the gospel with them. Uh, and, and we saw that in the book of Acts. And we've seen it again throughout history. So rather than stamping out the church, it, the church grows and spreads. Tonight I want to switch perspectives. Because the church has not always, it's not always been everywhere in one long, uninterrupted period of persecution. It just hasn't. No, for the church in, in, in different places of the world and for different periods of time in history, it has had long, uninterrupted periods of prosperity and been in positions of power, and uh, the church has experienced long periods of peace. So what I want us to think about tonight is part two, the history of the church, part two, the church in power. Or think of it in terms of, I'm, I could have put the church in, I could have, there's a lot of things I wanted to say there, the church in power, um, the, or in prosperity, or in peace, or, um, and I told you guys last week that Satan has two weapons that he likes to use against believers, against the church. One is pain. We talked about that last week. One is pain, in which um, persecution is an example of, that, that pain causes us, could cause us to be angry at God for that and, and, and want to turn away from God because we're angry at him. Why did, why did he allow this thing to happen to me? That's one weapon that Satan likes to use against believers. The other one is pleasure. Pleasure is the other weapon that Satan likes to use. 
which that weapon makes us, could make us, fall in love with other things that we find pleasurable and cause us to forget about God altogether. It's not that we actively turn away from Him, we just forget about Him. We just fall in love with the present world as Demas did, uh, Paul's companion. That's the danger we're going to think about tonight. And quite frankly, for most all of us in this room, it's the danger we've been living in all our lives. Like last week, we're going to go back and forth between Scripture and church history, look at several different passages of Scripture, several different episodes of church history. And, uh, but we'll start in this place, in, in 1 Timothy 6. So if you have found that place in your Bible, I want to read that passage, which if there's any uh, passage that could serve as a foundational text for what we're going to talk about tonight, this could be it. And so I'm going to read from the second, the end of verse 2. Uh, through, through verse 19. Paul writes and tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you, were, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient clear and necessary word it's your word to us this is not our opinion this is not the this is not the the 
the mere words of the almost 40 different men who literally wrote these down on paper, but the scriptures tell us that men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and all scripture is God-breathed. So we confess our faith in that. This is your word, therefore uh, we, we should listen to it. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth, minds to understand it, hearts to embrace and love it, wills to obey it. Give me the help that I need to teach and chastise us all where we need to be chastised and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot to think about in this. In this it was a lengthy passage that I read, and there's no way we can just filter through every single, every single uh, verse um, that we just read. But we're going to see, try to move through it as clearly as we can. Here's how I want to lay it out. We're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight, so get ready to read. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about the scriptural dangers that the church faces in times of peace and prosperity and in power. Yeah, the scriptural dangers. And then second, we'll think about the historical demonstration of, of the truth of what scripture clearly said and how, and how uh, about these dangers and how the church has and still fall into the same dangers that scripture warns us about, has throughout all its history and still does today. So just those two points. We'll start with the scriptures and the dangers it warns us about. So, like I said, there's no way that in this 1 Timothy 6 passage we can comb carefully through everything that's here. That would be a worthwhile pursuit. Now, the reason we're starting here is because I do think it illustrates a pattern that we see throughout other places in Scripture. What is that pattern? Well, I think in this passage in 1 Timothy 6, the danger of prosperity is both active and passive. Okay, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. The danger of prosperity, I think, in, in, whoop, in this passage is both active and passive. What do I mean by that? Actively, actively, prosperity and power corrupt the church, actively corrupt the church, and, and cause it to love the things of the world. And when I say causes it, we're the church, causes us to love the, the, the things of the world and the pleasures of the world and the good gifts that God has given us more than God himself. Love the gifts more than the giver. That's an active danger. Passively, something else is also happening while that's happening. Passively, it, it, what happens is we simply forget about God, as I mentioned earlier. I don't know that for the church in times of prolonged peace or of prosperity or power, I don't know that there is always a conscious turning away uh, from the Lord, but, but rather it just passively happens without their realizing it. In fact, very often the church has in those times assumed, assumed that it was, that it was still being faithful to the Lord and doing His will, receiving His blessing, when in fact they were very far away from God if they thought about it at all, active and passive. Let's go back through those things and look at it a little more carefully. Let's, let's look at the active danger of corruption uh, when the church is in these periods of peace and prosperity. Look, all right, so uh, 1 Timothy 6, we're here, and uh, let's look at verses 6 through 10. All right, again, real closely. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful dangers that that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, and and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice how active that language is. Those who desire to be rich, that's active. This isn't something that's happening to them. This is something that they're doing. I'm, I, I desire this. I aspire to this. I want this. But, but what actively follows that desire? It says that they fall into temptation and, and fall into, terror, into snares. What are those temptations and snares that they fall into? Look at the text. Those temp- that the temptations they fall into, the snares they fall into, are specified as many more senseless and harmful desires. Desire unchecked breeds more desire. Man. And through it, it says, we plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction, into all kinds of evils. And listen to again how active verse 10 sounds. It is through this craving, that's active, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and not been pierced with many pangs, pierced themselves with many pangs. That's active. It happens all the time. Judas betrayed Christ for the love of money. But many churches, Christians, especially even Christian leaders and pastors have fallen into sin and even greater sin because of the love of money or the love of power, prestige, pleasure. I mean, they, even pastors have abused people verbally, physically, sexually, un, been unfaithful to their wife, women to their husbands, Pastors even have been dishonest about how they've handled money, which led to more and more dishonesty. Many professing Christians will do anything, not just pastors, but a lot of even professing Christians will do anything just to get it, just to get power or pleasure or, or uh, prosperity. Do anything to get it, do anything to hold on to it and keep it plunged into ruin, it says. We'll see that played out for sure in stark ways at times in church history, including in our own day. Paul says here, notice though how he says to defend yourself against it. Notice that he says to defend yourself against this active pursuit of pleasure or prosperity. To defend yourself against that, you're to actively pursue something else instead. He says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Flee one thing, pursue another. It's an active daily fight. It's, 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 a, a, it's a very active danger. So don't, another way to say this is, we all have the love of money in our hearts. Whether the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of prosperity and and Peace, comfort, we, we, we all desire those things. 
in not just desire them, but desire them in inordinate ways, twisted ways. And the way that you fight that in your heart, we don't fight that, that love, that twisted love. We don't fight that love mainly with deprivation. I want to deprive myself of those things. You fight that love with a better love. Does that make sense? You, you fight a, a twisted love, fight it with a greater love. The love of God. Pursue these things. Don't pursue that, pursue this. That's active. It's active. But like I said, part of what can make times of peace and prosperity in the church and when the church is in positions of power, pleasures abounding, it, what makes it so dangerous is what is passively happening to us all in the meantime without our ever noticing it. Look down in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly pro provides us with everything to enjoy. And I know that sounds active in some ways, too, and it is. But there is, when you really think about this verse, there's something passive that seems to be going on. It seems like Paul is showing how subtle it can, it can all be in our hearts and minds. It's not always that, that we actively and intentionally set our hopes on earthly things and earthly what we think are certainties. No, and, 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 and we're, it's not like we're intentionally setting our hope on money and, 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 and intentionally not setting our hope on God. No, it just it just something that slowly happens passively when we're not actively pursuing the better thing. It's not as if all the all the folk and it's like as if it's like all the focus is on the earthly riches and the person just simply forgets, as he says here, that the hope is to be set on God and the fact that He richly provides us with all these good things. And that that at least in the church, seems to be the most dangerous danger of all. We pursue pleasure or, the, or, or power or prosperity, and it captures us so much that we simply forget God and forget truth. And we become deceived even more. It, we forget God without even realizing it. That is all over Scripture. That is what is all over Scripture. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll go Old Testament, New Testament here. Deuteronomy, fourth book of the Bible. Nope, fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8. All right, so just a little Bible so you know your Bible better. Um, do you know what Deuteronomy means? The word means second law. Deutero in Greek means second. Namas means law, second law. Why is it called second law? Because just it'll help you remember where you are in the story. Um, the first generation that had come out of Egypt, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And Moses had given them the law the first time in Exodus chapter 20. They all died in the wilderness out of disobedience. When their children were of age, 
and about to go into the promised land, Moses came a second time to give them a law a second time. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's what you find in Deuteronomy. Here we are in chapter 8, and they're about to go soon into the promised land under Joshua and Caleb. And, and just let's, let's read chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might take you, that might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted that in Luke chapter 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten, and are full, and have built good houses, and live in them. When your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers that it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of your God. He knows that the land he's going to bring them to is a good land. They'll eat and, and not be hungry. They're not going to lack anything. A rich land. And what does he know that they will be prone to do? He tells them three times in verse 11, in verse 14, in verse 19, that they will be prone to forget him altogether in that good land. When they've built houses and they multiply and everything's good, they don't feel like they have any need, they forget God. And he tells them very actively in verse 18, remember the Lord, that he's the giver of the good gifts, better than all those gifts. And he'll tell them again at the end of the book, flip over to chapter 31. He'll tell them over at the, right before they go in, 
verses 19 to 21. <laughs> yeah. He says, now, Deuteronomy 31, 19 to 21. Now, therefore, write this song. <laughs> write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land of uh, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it, it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. What is that? That's forget him before i even brought them into the land that i swore to give what what song is that that's chapter 32 the song of moses he wants them to sing a song to learn a song that they might by any means possibly reminded let's not forget the lord who gave us these things but they didn't learn the lesson we don't have to turn there but even the like the, the later prophets in israel's history this is a constant theme hosea is probably the starkest like he was commanded to literally marry a prostitute who continued after their marriage being unfaithful to him, but he was faithful to her as a picture of what Israel was doing to God and God is that faithful to him. Why were they unfaithful? Because it was a time of prosperity in, in, uh, in, in, in Israel. Prosperity and promiscuity. Hosea says it's no different in his day, so many years later than it was that day in the wilderness under Moses and Joshua. The people were rich, they were comfortable, they pursued pleasure, and they forgot God. Which is why when you come to the New Testament, Jesus literally says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Does it say you cannot have money? He's not saying it's wrong to be rich. Jesus was buried for three days in the tomb of a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea. Right? He's not saying, but you cannot serve money. And it so easily becomes your master. He'll say in Matthew chapter 19, that money and pleasures and possessions work against us spiritually. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus talked a lot about money. Jesus said more about money than he said about heaven and hell combined. Why? Because it so easily lures us away from the Lord without our realizing it. It's like, the, it's like the, the frog that you throw into boiling water. He jumps right back out. It's like if you, if you were poor as a pauper and you won the lottery and all of a sudden you're rich and then you just, it's pretty stark from A to B, wasn't rich, now I'm a millionaire and you see what it's doing in your heart. You're like, I don't want to, it's changing me. I don't want to do this. But if you throw the frog in the tepid water and you turn it up slowly, he boils to death, you accumulate more and you accumulate more and you don't even realize what it's doing to your heart all along the way. And it's through our forgetting that we come to love it more than God. 
and trust it more than God and serve it more than God. And it acts like a God in our life. And we let it, which is why later in the New Testament, Paul words Colossians 3, 5, the way he does. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, which is pleasure, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is a desire, a craving for stuff, which is idolatry. It's idolatry. Prosperity, power, pleasure, they're the easiest idols in our life. These are. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a great book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I would commend it to you. It's about that thick, so take a little bit and read it. Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. He says, materialism consists of the two things that God hates the most. Idolatry and adultery. And it's dangerous because it's so easy to happen. Because it's so deceptive, we need to know this. But let's look at how the Bible ends. Let's turn one more place. Let's read one more chapter. Revelation chapter 18. All that glitters is not gold. The book of Revelation holds up Babylon as a symbol of all earthly pleasures. Kingdoms of this world that hold out shiny pleasure to people. Things that draw us away from Christ. So we're talking, this is Revelation 18, the fall of Babylon. Verse 1, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plague shall come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of, tor of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour judgment is come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of, all, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, 
spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who, grant, who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors whose all, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you his saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more and the voice of a bridegroom and a bride be heard in you no more for your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all of all who had been slain on earth that's a sobering word well it's clear in scripture and i think as maybe as we've talked about it we might have already sensed that this is still very much a present reality not just in the world but but in our own hearts, the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of prosperity. We can look around and see these truths played out in our own day and in our own hearts. But I want to I take a, a few minutes and just think about some episodes of where we've seen this all throughout church history. How else has it played out throughout the history of the church from then to now? We don't have any time time to go into all the details or certainly not every era of church history painting in broad strokes just like i did last week but it started in earnest when constantine became the emperor the full emperor of the roman empire in 8324 324 up until that time we talked about it last week persecution had been the norm for the church in the roman empire we talked about the diocletian uh, persecution and others but when Constantine became emperor and converted to Christianity Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire so not only was persecution gone but prosperity and peace for the church had taken its place the Roman government funded the church right lots of money and the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a reality. So comfort, pleasure, and prosperity all of a sudden. And in those earliest years of the church, 
Right after that happened, though, good things were still happening. Some of the greatest theologians the church has ever known, some of the, the church fathers lived in that day. People that you've never heard of, but you don't realize you still are in debt to when you say what you believe. It was a time when monasticism was, a, was, a, was at its height. People living in caves and, and <laughs> in communities trying to be faithful, rigorously faithful and obedient to the Lord. But it was a time when corruption began to grow in the church, especially in the capital city of Rome, where prosperity was the greatest. I'm going to skip over a lot of, lot of time because it, it took a while to grow. We're going to see that, well, I'll just try to make it clear. We'll fast forward about 1,000 years, maybe 1,200 years or so to the days leading up to the Reformation. Martin Luther was one of those monks. He was an Augustinian monk. And he lived in Germany. He didn't understand the gospel. And he was in anguish over his own soul before the Lord. He felt like, as a monk, he felt like not understanding the gospel, he felt like he had to abuse himself to try to please God. He, he felt like God was angry at him, and he felt like God hated him, and so if he abused himself enough, God would relent. His mentor, and he was, he was obsessed with it, his mentor in Erfurt, Germany, told him um, that maybe it would do him good to make a pilgrimage to Rome. This was in 1510. Make a pilgrimage to Rome, sort of get out, get out of his own head. Luther saw that, as, that suggestion as a great opportunity to find peace with God, to go to Rome itself. So in 1511, he and one other partner set out for Rome on foot, walked from Erfurt, Germany to Rome, Italy, over 800 miles. When exhausted and probably blistered and bloody from at least his feet, from walking that distance, when he saw Rome in the distance, he's recorded as saying, Be greeted, thou holy Rome. Truly holy because of the holy martyrs dripping with their blood. He was in awe of the splendor of the city. He felt like it surely it was a sign of God's amazing presence and favor here. But when he got there, and he stayed for about a month, he grew deeply disillusioned and depressed. Because he saw the opulence of the city. And he saw the home where the Pope lived and the opulence of that home. And he heard stories of gross immorality among the priests and even the Pope himself at the time. And he just couldn't believe it. And he left worse than he came. One biographer of Luther wrote about his pilgrimage to Rome. The city which he had greeted as holy was a sink of iniquity. Its very priests were openly infidel and scoffed at the services they performed. The papal courtiers were men of the most shameless lives. He was accustomed to repeat the Italian proverb, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. 
Persecution drove the church closer to God. Prosperity drove it away. When Luther went back to Germany, in the years right after that, uh, he came to understand the gospel. The Reformation was beginning to happen. He understood the gospel. He believed it. Sins forgiven. Born again. He began to debate there in Germany with other uh, Roman Catholic professors and priests, cardinals. In fact, that's what the 95 theses were, with 95 debate points, that he was inviting a debate. One man in particular that he debated and, well, hated, was Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was, worked for the Pope, he was going around, he was trying to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he would go around to the, the poor and collect money from them. And if they gave money, he gave the promise that their dead relatives would be released from purgatory into heaven. Had a, a rhyme. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he was very dramatic. He would have a fire and he would literally stick his hand in the fire to imagine their loved ones in purgatory being purged of their remaining sin. Right, And uh, Luther was disgusted at how shamelessly wicked the church had gotten in its prosperity and lost the gospel in the process. That was the church in Rome. Did the Protestant Reformation change everything? No. The Protestant Reformation recovered the gospel, yes. But it didn't, it didn't get rid of that, that same drive in our hearts, that same craving in our hearts. In England, around the same time, they had already broken away from Rome. So a Protestant Reformation that happened in England. We talked about William Tyndale last week. In Tyndale's time, about 40 years after what I just told you about Luther, there was a, one bishop, another bishop, and along with Tyndale, who um, talked about the, what the Church of England was like in his day. And they talked about, this is from... David Daniel's biography of Tyndale, he says, they talked about the details not only of the negligence, this is the priests, the, the pastors, details not only of the negligence and ungodly behavior of the ministers of Gloucestershire, but inhospitable, non-resident, uh, inefficient, drunken, and evil living incumbents who were to be found in every deanery. The vicar of Watton under an edge had to answer to a charge of forging a will. And Tyndall wanted to know how well the, the, the pastors even knew the Bible. And here's what, of the unsatisfactory clergy in 1551, nine did not know how many commandments there were of the Ten Commandments. Thirty-three did not know where they appeared in the Bible. The Gospel of St. Matthew was a favorite guess. And 168 couldn't repeat them. Most extraordinary of all, perhaps, were the results of the Lord's Prayer part of the examination. 30 did not, 39 did not know where it appeared in the Bible. 34 did not know who was its author, the Lord's Prayer. And 10 actually proved unable to recite it. These are your pastors. The priests had no idea what they were saying. They didn't even understand Latin. They memorized what to say. They didn't know what they were saying. They couldn't explain it to you if you asked. They certainly didn't know anything about the gospel of salvation. They were the ones leading the people. And to see how this trickles down, I'm going to get to why, how this has to do with prosperity in a minute. 
He has a trick like that. Do you, do you know where, if you do, just be proud of yourself. Do you know where the phrase hocus pocus comes from? Hocus pocus? It comes from the day when the, in, in England when the, the, the poor masses would flock into the, the building for communion. And when the, 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 the priest, which was all in Latin, when the priest would hold up the bread and he would say, hocus corpus meum, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. Right? They, didn't, they weren't even going to even partake of the bread or anything. They just wanted to be in the presence and hear the words because they thought when he said, when he held it up and said, hocus corpus meum, he was saying something magical that it would bring blessing to them if they just heard the word. Well, he didn't understand Latin. They didn't understand Latin. So they didn't remember exactly what he said, hocus corpus meum. They corrupted it and it became hocus pocus. What was the leading factor of in, the, in the Protestant church in England that day of that being the reality? Not just ignorant, but wicked priests. Because to be clergy in that day meant a secure job, a comfortable salary, and an estate to live in. It meant a prosperous life, and that was God. Prosperity throughout church history, has done just what Scripture said it would do. When the church has been in power, when it's been prosperous and lusted after pleasure, it's forgotten God and corrupted itself in the most dishonorable ways, and nothing has changed to this day. The easy target in our own day is the prosperity gospel. And if you don't know much about that, watch the documentary American Gospel. We showed it here. We don't need to pretend, though, that the prosperity gospel, that's the easy target. We don't need to think that that's the lone example in our, in our culture. It's not. It's the most egregious. It's a danger in our own hearts. If you don't think that comfort and prosperity and pleasure, even power, are temptations in your own heart, we need to examine our hearts a little more closely. If we know this about ourselves, and we want to follow hard after Christ, well, then we can know that one day he will judge Babylon. But in the meantime, Jude 24 says he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's pray.